Morning. If you would uh, open your Bibles with me to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. We're going to read verse 3. That's our text for today. So Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, this is Paul speaking, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So last week, we looked at humility before God. This is vertical humility, the, the humbling ourselves before the creator God of the universe. And we said the way that we do that is we consider the holiness of God and our sinfulness. So if we know God rightly and we know ourselves rightly, we can humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's the vertical element of humility. Today we're going to be looking at the horizontal element of humility. How do we act in humility towards others? Okay, so we have a vertical component, we have a horizontal component. Now, vertical pride, pride against God, seeks the throne of God. It says, I want to be on there and I want God off of it. Horizontal pride says, I'm going to beat everybody else to that throne. Okay, right, so let's bear that in mind. I would like to uh, remind you, last week I, I posed a question to you. Does anybody remember what it was? Can you say it if you remember it? Do you live for yourself or do you live for God? Okay, I'm seeing some lips move in concert. Today, I haven't got a question for you. I've got a statement for you. So this, if there's one thing to remember from today, it's this. This is a mission, not a competition. Okay, this is a mission, not a competition. So we're going to be repeating that as we look at the different parts of, of the text today. But I, I, before we start springing to various other parts of Scripture to look at humility, let's look specifically at this text here and just make a few observations. So Paul starts by saying, For by the grace given to me. Now, this grace is the grace of apostleship that he's been given a specific gift to the church, a grace, um, the office of being an apostle. So when he's saying this, he's saying, I am saying this to you with the authority of who? Christ. Because Christ commissions his apostles. Okay, so he's saying, I say to you in the name of Christ, to everyone, no exceptions, I'm saying this in the authority of Christ to all of you. It doesn't mean that the elders are excluded or those of you who are mature Christians are excluded or those of you who only do this Christian thing part-time are excluded. No, everybody is included in this instruction. And then he says, don't think of yourself. So the next part is he says, think. So part of faith is reasoning. God says, come, let us reason together in the scriptures. Okay, so you need to work this through, work the reality of what Paul is going to say through. So do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Now, that's interesting words, more highly. Why doesn't he just say, don't think of yourselves highly? Because... We are all made in the image and likeness of God. And there is beauty and wisdom 
and wonder. Uh, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay? And so there is a right, high way to think of yourself. Okay? But don't think of yourself more highly than that. Do not exalt yourself, but actually think properly. Get yourself rightly orientated to reality. But instead to think with sober judgment. Most of us think with a drunken judgment. We are drunk on the intoxication of pride that says, my sin is small, that guy's sin is big. Okay? Uh, we are drunk on the intoxicating effects of um, people uh, coming to you and saying, you know, you are just amazing. And then we hear that volume at like 100%. And then someone goes and says, you know, I saw the other day when you said this to this person that was quite, that was pretty mean. That goes down to like mute. Okay? Right. So that's one of our problems. We need to think with sober judgment. And where is the one place that we can get an accurate diagnosis of where we are? In the scriptures. God speaks to us about where we are at. And in contrast, we're going to think of ourselves according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This is interesting. There's two ways of looking at that. The, since this passage goes on to speak about spiritual gifts and and callings in the church, you can look at it as saying, God has given everybody a certain amount of grace to do a certain thing, which is true. And so you need to think of yourself in relation to whatever it is that God has given you. And there's a sense in which that's true, and we're going to look at that um, today. But there's also a general sense in which everybody has been given a, a measure of faith that is in the gospel, that we all have this common trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to act according to the calling that we've received in him. So it's both of these things. All right, so as we're going to deep, uh, dive deep into this text and the, and the teachings of, of Scripture about humility, I'd like to suggest that, as I said in this phrase, we are on a mission. We're on a mission. And every mission has six components. So you want to write these down. Every team mission has the following six elements. One, the mission has a purpose. There's a reason we're doing this. One, the mission has a purpose. Two, the team has a culture for how it operates. Okay, there's a way in which we're going to do things in this team for this mission. So two, the team has a culture for how it operates. Three, the team members have various crucial skills. So skills. There's a, a set of abilities that each person in the team brings to this mission. So three, the team members have various skills. Four, the team has embarked on specific training. In order for success, the, the team has to train as a team and for the mission. So four, the team has embarked on specific training. Five, the team has a leader. Critical for mission success is somebody who sets the direction and the path in whom the others follow. So fifth, the team has a leader. And sixth and finally, the mission has a reward. Every mission has a purpose and it ends in a reward when that is com accomplished. So six, the mission has a reward. 
So we got purpose, culture, skills, training, leader, and reward. Let's look at the first one. Purpose. The mission has a purpose. If you could open with me to Matthew chapter 22. We're just going to read from verse 34 to verse 40. So Matthew 22, 34 to 40. And when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him, that's Jesus, with a question. Teacher, which commandment is the greatest in the law? Jesus declared, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. See, the law requires love. God's law requires love. If you look at the, uh, the Ten Commandments, there are, it's broken down into the love that we have for God and the love that we have for our neighbor. This is what the law requires of us. But in order for us to love, we need humility. It is the soil in which love for others can grow. So, interestingly, Jesus says, when he, says um, when he talks about loving others, he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Notice he doesn't have to tell us to love ourselves. We got that covered. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's like, you guys, you guys love yourself enough. <laughs> okay. You need to love others that same way. You, you think of yourself so highly, you, you want to care for yourself and make sure you have all your needs met, that's what you need to do for everybody else. Who is everybody else? It's everybody else. Literally everyone. It's your brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's the lost. So when we look at fellow believers, we can go to Ephesians 4. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. I, therefore, this is Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness, and to preserve and maintain unity with one another. So that's what we're called to do. We're called to serve believers in a humble state. And if we want to see how we're to treat the lost, we can go to Matthew chapter 28. All of you will be familiar with this, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what's the ultimate aim of the Christian life, of life in the body as it regards other people? It's to serve. That's what the kingdom is about. And Ultimately, when we do that, we're drawing attention to the true sacrificial one, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who died for our sins. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
And this requires humility. Why? Because you can't reach others from pride. Pride does not reach out. Pride looks in. So, remember this, brothers and sisters. This is a mission, not a competition. So that's the purpose. Now, culture. The team has a culture that it operates according to. So if we go to Mark chapter 10, go to verse 35. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him... Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay, so they march up to Christ and say, we got, we got a list. We got a laundry list that you're going to do for us. And he says to them, instead of, no, you're going to do what I want you to do, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. We want the best seats in the house. Okay, so they just march up and say, okay, king of the universe, we want to sit next to you in the best seats of the house. If we skip down to verse 42, Jesus called, called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is a forgetful bunch because... We've also uh, seen in Mark chapter 9, they just had a similar incident. In verse 33, they came to Capernaum, and, and Jesus was in the house, and he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> and he, Jesus knew the hearts of men. He didn't need their answer. So he sat down, and he called the twelve to them, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last and of all and the servant of all. The culture of the kingdom of God turns things upside down. It is totally countercultural. It works the opposite way that the world does. Think of it this way. Jesus, in describing the kingdom of God totally redefines greatness for us. We're born into a system which tells us that greatness is something very different from that which appears in, in scriptures. If you want to be the first, you've got to be the last. If you want to lead, you've got to make yourself lowest, a servant of all, a slave, a doulos, is a phrase that appears in the New Testament to describe that. And when Paul talks about himself as a servant in the church, the word he used is sort of like a... A galley slave under rower, like the lowest of the low on the lowest deck, just hauling a single oar. And Paul, through whom Christ the Holy, and the Holy Spirit penned the words to us of Scripture, he had that view of himself. Be the lowest. He says, I, of, of sinners, I'm the foremost. Of people, I'm the lowest. That's the attitude of humility. 
Now, if Jesus' disciples, they were walking with him for ages, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and they had this issue with pride. They were competing for a place in the kingdom of God. How much more do we have to be vigilant? They were there under his tutelage. They were in his presence. But we have an aid, the Holy Spirit, who has given us to lead us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So we can look at what the rest of the scriptures say about humility and know that the Spirit of God will work in us to accomplish this. So let's have a look. In 1 Peter 3 verse 3, humility dresses modestly. In Ecclesiastes 5 2, humility keeps its words few. In Ecclesiastes 7 8, humility is patient in spirit. In Proverbs 13 18, humility is teachable. In Romans 14, 13, humility alters its preferences for the sake of others. In Luke 14, humility takes the lowest seat at the table at the banquet. In 1 Peter 5, 5, humility submits to the elders. In Proverbs 29, 23, humility receives honor. In Luke 18, 13, humility cries, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In, Luke's, in Matthew 6, verse 3, humility gives without wanting to be seen by others. In James 3, 13, humility does not praise itself. In Romans 12, 16, humility associates with the lowly in society. In Proverbs 13, 10, humility takes advice. And in Galatians 5, 13, humility serves in love as our great Savior, Jesus Christ, did. But in contrast to all of this, you and I swim in a different set of waters. We swim in the Western waters of individualism. It's a culture that says, me, 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 I, I, I. It's I syndrome, but an I issue. I, 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 I. Me, 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 me. And the the culture of the kingdom of God is about others, others, others. Quite the opposite. In the kingdom of this world, it's about self-glorification, about fame, about idolatry, ambition. But Jesus defines greatness as laying down your life for others. So, the kingdom of God's culture is a radically others-orientated culture. That's what we need to remember. The kingdom of God is a radically others-orientated culture culture this walk this life of the church it's a mission not a competition because in competition how many winners are there one but in the kingdom of god we all inherit all things with christ we have a a common goal in the kingdom of god christ is the victor He's the one whose sacrificial death and resurrection and ascension and intercession for the believers stewards us and sends us into the kingdom of God. He's the one who accomplishes all righteousness and to whom all glory is due. And then in his great grace and his love, he folds us in and he shares glory 
with us. We'll be glorified, we'll be made to be like Christ when we see him. And he will give us an inheritance and we will live with him forever and share in his spoils. We sang, how is it that I gain? Why should I gain from this reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. There is no reason why Christ should include us in, in his inheritance, except that he would glorify himself and display his great love to us in doing so. But if you really, 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 really just want to compete against one another, there's one area in scripture where you're allowed to compete. Mm. Romans 12, 9 to 10. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So if you must compete, be better at giving away glory than anybody else. (laughs) If you can't do that, you have an orphan mentality. What Delaney was speaking about just now, about, about orphans, it's the opposite reality of our adoption into the kingdom of heaven. This orphan mentality says, it's about me because there's only so much love and affection and resources available. But that's not true. Is not God full of grace and love and mercy and riches? And loving kindness. There is more than enough grace for all believers. Brothers and sisters, this is a mission, not a competition. So that's the culture. Skills, the team members have various crucial skills. As we are in this mission, we need to remember the next few verses of today's text. So, Romans chapter 12. We just read verse 3 at the start. We're going to read verse 4 to 8. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving... Uh, The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So what do we see here? We see a body. A body is made up of parts and they have their life and their unity in one another. They're a whole. And the New Testament imagery of a body is really, really strong. It recognizes that they are individual parts and that they contribute something unique and important, but they are to be found attached to the body as a whole. Together they make up a body, Christ of whom is the head. So, I think we're all able to figure out that if a body is missing a part, it has a dysfunction. As a result, it's not going to perform the same way that it should. So if you see a limb lying on the floor, you know two things. One, that limb is going to die because it's been cut off from its life source. Okay, And two, that body is hurt. And it's not going to work the same way that it should. That's what you need to think about with the gifts that God gives us 
from service. I know that some of you have tried to serve and have maybe been denied. And others have tried and been allowed to serve, but you've been hurt. But I want to say something to you. I want to encourage you and I I want to give you boldness by asking you a question. Do you serve man or do you serve God? Will you allow fear to isolate you and to rob the body of the gift that you have to offer? If this is you, I want to encourage you. Go and talk to an elder. They will listen to you and they will help you. You can trust them and they'll show you where you can exercise your gifts in this body. We need you to be serving the church. You have, whoever you are, you have a precious gift that is needed in this body. Now, it might not be the gift you want. Maybe you want the gift of hospitality, but you just find yourself not too much of a people person. Or maybe you want to be here teaching the scriptures. But whatever you find yourself gifted in, it's slightly different to what you think that you should have. Now, I want to, I want to tell you gently, that is pride. Because it says, I know better than the hand of God what gifts should be distributed to me. You need to have confidence that when God gives you a gift, he's giving you a gift because he knows that that's going to best serve the body and it's not going to kill you. God knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows what we are able to do. Uh, There are some people who will be killed by pride through fame. And so he gives them a mercy ministry outside of the sight of anybody. And that's the greatest protection that God could give you in your soul. So bear that in mind. It is pride to say to God, I should have had another gift from your hand. Instead, recognize that whatever God has given you to do is absolutely critical to the overall functioning of the body. And if you disconnect yourself from the body, you can die. So, service given by God's grace is for each and every one of us in the body. If you don't have an expression of service in the body, you need to get one because that's how God has designed us to function. The world has a consumer mentality. It pitches up, it takes, and then it departs. The church is about coming together to contribute, to build one another up for the work of ministry so that when you go out, it's not so that you can just fuel yourself on what you got on Sunday, but it's so that you can hand it out over to others. We are missional, not competitional. This is a mission, not a competition. So that's skills. What about training? We need, to, we need to remember that teams have specific training for how to work together as a team and how to go on a mission. So in this process, training, training is about asking a question. How do I cultivate humility? That's the question we should regularly ask ourselves. How do I cultivate humility? And this is what I want you to remember. Listen carefully and write this down if you can. You do not get humility. You grow it. Okay? You don't get it. You grow it. Humility is not some mystical thing that just gets given to you. And now you're humble. You grow in humility by thinking about God. 
by rightly appraising yourself and by the regular service of others. We all know that in, uh, in the pride that remains in us. Like, I've tried to, to like, just switch it off overnight. That doesn't work very well. I need to actually kill it by participating in the graces that God has given to the church. As I serve in the church, I murder pride. As I take the gospel out in humility, I kill the pride that remains in me. And that's what we need to do. We need to have a war against pride. So for humility, you don't get it, you grow it. And James 1.22 says to us, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So it's not sufficient to hear about humility and to understand it. You have to demonstrate it. That it can become this abiding reality in your life. And last week we saw about how humility comes from having this divine perspective. Uh, seeing ourselves through the lens of God's holiness and, and our sinfulness, we're able to rightly appraise ourselves. Uh, and we looked at a few ways in which you can grow in humility. So I'm going to include some of those here, but here are eight ways for you to grow in humility. Eight ways for you to grow in humility. One, remember your sin. Think of your sin. How embarrassing it would be if people find out what you thought and what you do. That should humble you because there's a reality in your life which requires the grace of God. Now, as a believer, God has forgotten your sin in Christ. Blessed is the man whom the Lord doesn't count transgressions. He's counted them to Christ. He, he says, I'll remember your sin no more and I'll remove it from you as far as the east is from the west. But to humble ourselves, we must recognize this remaining, abiding, uh, inward reality of the, of the flesh that remains and needs to be put off daily. So to humble yourself, remember that you still continue to sin and you still continue to need the grace of God. To remove that from you. Charles Spurgeon said this. If any man thinks ill of you. Do not be angry with him. For you are far worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> That's a humbling reality isn't it? Like, you can't be cross that someone thinks badly of you. Because they don't think badly enough of you. Now obviously we're talking about this reality in the flesh. We're not talking about you as a new creation in Christ. But until Christ returns. This flesh is what Paul cries out and says, who will remove this body of death from me? Okay, so one, remember your sin. Two, think of your righteousness in Christ. So on the one hand, think of the fact that you continue to sin against God, but on the other hand, think of this righteousness that you have, that you are righteous in God's sight because of Christ. And the reason this humbles you is because Ephesians 2, 8-10 to tells you that uh, you have not been saved by works, but by grace. It's a free gift of God so that no one may boast. You can't boast for what someone else gave to you. Right? You can't say, I earned this if it was given to you. That g- grace is a free gift. The righteousness that comes to you in Christ is a free gift. Therefore, if you think about the fact that it was given to you, you will grow in humility. So number two, think of your righteousness in Christ. Number three, serve others. Those in the church and unbelievers. Luke 6.33 says, And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. So you need to 
serve your enemies. That's countercultural. That's kingdom culture. That you would serve your enemies because what good is it that you can do good things for those who you love and who do good to you? What really demonstrates love is to do good to those who do not do it to you. Why? Because that reality is mirrored and, and demonstrated most completely in the sacrificial death of Jesus. He came to save sinners who hated him and rebelled against him. We were his enemies and yet he died for us. So number three, serve others. Four, pray. Pray that God will help you grow in humility. That, these are prayers that God will answer. If God wants you to grow in humility and you ask God to help you grow in humility, he's going to help you grow in humility. His will for your life is that you become more like Jesus, more humble. And so he'll certainly accomplish that reality in your life if you should pray. So number four, pray. Number five, get good friends. I think we said last week that, that proverb that uh, the faithful are the wounds of a friend. If a friend conf- confronts you about your pride, uh, they will help you grow in humility. Don't just surround yourself with people who whisper sweet things in your ear to, to, and, and, and tickle your, self, um, your sense of self. Uh, those who will come and, and, and basically worship you by telling you what you want to hear. You don't want that. You want friends who are going to encourage you in the truth and help you to be more like Jesus. So number five, uh, get faithful friends. Number six, hang around humble people. When you get to see humility in action, it's compelling. You can see what that does for the people being served and you can see what it does for the person serving. And you can learn what humility looks like. I've often thought of things that I, I think would be humble to do and then I see somebody else do something different and you, and you see the demonstration of it and you think, wow, that is, that is really humble. That's attractive. That's an amazing way to live. That's what, in the, in the way in which Jesus lived and, and I want to follow in that. So number six, hang around humble people. Number seven, be in community. We have to train together. We have to train together. You can't practice serving other people on your own. You can't become humble, with as humble as humility is an action to, is actions towards others. You can't do that without being with others. You can't be an isolationist. You need to be with people in community. Seven, be in community. And finally, number eight, identify the graces in others. Humility looks for the graces and the successes and the victories of other people. Pride says, ah, it's, it's easy, like they had, a, they had an easy set of matches to that final, that's why they won. But humility actually is able to celebrate the graces in other people's lives. And if you can't do that, if you're a person who kind of can only criticize, and when you hear of good news about other people, you kind of feel jealous, then you lack graciousness, you are proud, you lack humility. So to grow in humility, practice identifying the graces in others. That's number eight. So it's critical if you notice areas where you aren't, aren't humble, that you have an action plan to grow in humility in your life. You need to take it seriously. You need a battle plan. This is a mission, not a competition. This is a long-term thing. You've got to identify the pride and put it to death. 
This is a mission, not a competition. The second to last, leader. The team has a leader. Philippians 2, 1, uh, 1 to 8 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we look at things like this, we look at the message of the gospel, we read through the gospels and, and, and the letters, we just see the continual and staggering humility of Christ. And I see my total lack of it. In contrast, see, Jesus underwent the greatest humiliation that is possible. God, the Creator, entered into creation. He descended to become man as well. Truly man, truly God. Jesus was. So the Creator of the universe humbled himself, and not just by entering humanity, not just by dying at the hands of wicked humanity, but dying the most shameful, scornful death possible, even death on a cross. That's our leader in this mission, in this team. He's the servant king, the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve. And if that's the example we can look at in Christ, the one who, when he arrived, he should have been worshipped, adored, exalted, hailed as king, bowed down to. Everyone should have laid themselves low in the dust, but they nailed him to a tree. They hated him, they cursed him, they scorned against him, they reviled him. They mocked him and... and this is our Savior they did this to, the one who was coming to accomplish redemption. He, the great true judge, the just judge of the world, was judged by wicked judges and had the penalty carried out by sinners who didn't deserve to be in his presence. And yet his grace is that he came to die this death for us. But we must also remember... Christ came as a servant king in humility to die this time. But when he returns, he comes to judge the living and the dead. He will not reign in humility. He will reign in absolute lordship. 
And so we should call all people to repentance and faith in Christ. But So if our leader is like this, his sacrifice has made possible true service for his followers. God has reconciled us in Christ so that we can become ministers outwardly of reconciliation to the world. Pleading with men, repent and trust in Christ and you'll find him to be a perfect savior. So should, if our Lord laid down his life in service like this to us, should not we do the same for others that some may trust in Christ and have life forever? Remember, brothers and sisters, this is a mission, not a competition. And finally, mission has a reward. Are we saying, why should I gain from his reward? But we do. There's no reason why we should accept the grace of God. Some of us feel a bit icky when we think about this topic. It's like, ooh, I shouldn't want a reward. I shouldn't desire it. But I want to put your mind at rest. It's the de- desire for reward is part of how God has made you. God is a rewarder that's clear in Scripture. And there's nothing wrong with the concept of doing the right thing and knowing that there's going to be a reward for it. In fact, this principle is taught clearly, repeatedly in Scripture. And it's the principle of sowing and of reaping. Let's look at a few scriptures. Romans 2.6 says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Galatians 6.9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. These are promises from God. Proverbs 11.18 says, A wicked person earns deceptive or deadly wages, but the one who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. So there's something really important to understand that uh, it's that reward is a, is a fine motivator if it's got a biblical attitude behind it, if it's got a Christ-exalting and an others-serving motivation behind it. And the way God does this rewarding is on the basis of faithfulness. It's very, very different from how this world rewards. This world reward says the more people, the more honor. You get the more famous you are, the the more exaltation, the more money you have, the more amazing you are. But the scriptures say the more faithful you are, the greater your reward. God judges you according to what you do with what you have been given. That's why it's possible for a pastor of a church of 10 people to have a much greater crown in heaven than a pastor of a mega church of 20,000 people. If that pastor of a church of 15 people has been more faithful. God judges you with what you do with what you have. And that we see in, in, in the book of Matthew, with the, in the Gospel of Matthew, with the uh, parable of the talents. Right? The person who had the most money didn't do anything with it, and he ended up with the same amount of money at the end. And now if you look at just the end score, you go, this guy wins. But he, that's what he had to start with. There's another guy who multiplied his talents. He's the one who served faithfully with what God has given. That's stewardship, and that's what God is going to reward you for. In the end, it's only God we should be aiming to please. Remember this, there is only one well done that truly counts. And it's the one that comes in, in Matthew twenty five twenty one. His master replies, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. What is the master's happiness? What is our reward? 
in Christ, it is that we will share in his inheritance. We will enter into the new heavens and the new earth and, and live with him in eternity, uh, for eternity in love and joy. So, remember, this is a mission, not a competition. Let's conclude. So Paul has said to us in our text for today that we need to exhibit humility in the way in which we uh, treat others. We are no longer sons of this world, but we are citizens of heaven. We act according to a different way of living, the kingdom of heaven. And before I pray, though, I want to give you a final thought. This serving of others, the service that God commands us to, calls us to, requires of us, remember this, this service does not make you right with God. Being right with God makes you able to serve. You can't make yourself right with God by the things that you do. Especially the things we say, the good things that we do. Because scriptures tell us that no one does good, no, not one. And in Genesis 3, God looks down at mankind and he says, the, heart, the thoughts of their heart are only evil, only evil, continuously. No one does good. But if God has changed your internal reality, it will express itself in outward service to others. So you can't make yourself right inside by what you do outside. But when God has made you right with God inside, you will be able to serve others. So do not be trapped into the lie of legalism. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we just ask you to teach us humility as we look to Jesus and as we look to the cross that where he died for us. We ask you to strengthen us. We ask you to give us the ability to serve others in the power of your Holy Spirit, not in our own strength. So help us to lean, Lord, on your power to lift up those around us. And just we ask that the, the words that you give to us in Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24 will ring in our ears this week. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For it is in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So Father, if there's anything at all in which to boast, it is Christ, his death, and his resurrection. And we thank you for these great truths today. Lord, we ask that you may be honored by them as we remember that this is a mission and not a competition. Amen.